Good morning. Welcome to each of you. I'm glad you're here this morning. For all of you that are visiting, I want to welcome you as well. We're blessed to have you this morning. Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Those of you that are visiting as well, just to let you know, we are going through the book of Acts verse by verse. I'm very excited to be studying this book. It's full of so many things that are important for us to know and to glean from and to have the Lord apply to our lives. So we are very excited about what we're learning and what's coming in the, in the coming weeks. So we're excited. Okay, Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched... He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphys, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, Altogether, the, names, the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. That's perky. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that, so that, so that field is called in their own language Akeldama, which is, or that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, "Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his place." Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's pray together. Father, as we always pray, thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it to turn to. We thank you that it'll outlive the heavens and the earth. We're so thankful that we have the privilege of building our lives upon it, Lord, and you said that if, you, if we abide in your word, that we're your disciples indeed, Lord. And so we want to we abide in your word, Lord, and let you do the work that only you can do through it by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd accomplish every purpose that you have for us this morning, Lord. We pray that each one of our hearts would be open to all that you want to instruct us about. We pray, Lord, that we would desire to be doers of the word and not just hearers only, deceiving ourselves, as James told us in his epistle. We pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit 
he would be our teacher this morning. We pray, Lord, that everything you want to accomplish in us, Lord, thank you that you do want to accomplish so much in us. Thank you that you continue to set us apart for your holy use, and thank you that you're always conforming us into the image of your Son. We pray that all that would be accomplished this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In beginning our journey through the book of Acts that we began last week, we have already learned quite a bit. Just in eight verses, we've learned so much. It's almost overwhelming when you look at what we've learned already. We've learned that a Gentile physician named Luke wrote the book of Acts. And then he wrote the book of Acts as, as a sequel to his gospel. And he wrote to a man named Theophilus. I'm glad my name is not Theophilus. Uh, although it means lover of God, and I'd like to be considered one who loves God, but it'd probably be a little bit hard to spell, and, and people would have a problem with it. So I'm glad I'm not named Theophilus. But we're told that this Theophilus, to whom he was writing, was, was the recipient, and he was probably someone high up in Roman government. We don't know exactly the relationship that, that Luke had with Theophilus, but he did write this book to him. And also we, we learned that since it was written as a two-volume set, Luke tells us in his gospel that what he wrote in the gospel of Luke was that it was an orderly account and that it was written to provide Theophilus with certainty the things that he had already been instructed in. So we can know that if those things were written in the book of Luke and it's a two-volume set, that we can be confident also, of course, by the Holy Spirit that, that those things are true for the book of Acts as well and that we can be encouraged and have provided certainty to our hearts of the things that we've already been instructed in. We've also learned how precise, exact, and careful Luke was in recording this orderly account. In fact, as I mentioned last week, there was a man named Sir William Ramsey who became a Christian because he went to try to disprove Luke's accuracy in the in the nation of Israel, and he came there from Britain, and he ended up becoming a Christian because he couldn't disprove it. Actually, he verified the accuracy of the events contained in it. We also saw that since the Gospel of Luke was a record of all that Jesus began to teach, then it, it follows that the book of Acts is what Jesus continues to do and teach, and what he continued to do and teach, and what he continues to do and teach up to this day through our lives, because the Gospel, or Acts rather, never had an ending. It continues on up to this day, and he did that on purpose. We also learned that the title could be, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, it could be the continued Acts of Jesus through the disciples by the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus continued his ministry through the disciples, and and he did that by the Holy Spirit, by his leading and, and by his power. We also saw that Jesus, for 40 days, subsequent to his resurrection, presented himself alive to them by many infallible proofs, we're told, And he demonstrated these infallible proofs by appearing to them and teaching them the things pertaining to the kingdom for 40 days. How would you like to be there? How would you like to hear him teach concerning the kingdom after he rose from the dead? That would be quite a a time. I'm sure we'd love to have the CDs from that if they existed at that time. Then he told them to wait in Jerusalem. Wait's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? When you want to go, the last thing you want to hear is wait. And they probably needed to hear wait because they wanted to go. Why would he didn't tell them to wait if they didn't have a, a leaning or a proclivity towards, towards going? But he did. He told them to wait. And the reason why he told them to wait was that he had promised them the Holy Spirit back in John chapter 14. We went there and we saw how he promised that the Holy Spirit would be given. And, and he would be another helper. That the Holy Spirit would be another helper. And the word another 
means another of the same kind. And the word helper means one who comes alongside to help. So another one who comes alongside to help, just like Jesus in the Holy Spirit came to the disciples. And he promised that back in John chapter 14. Now and then the disciples got off the subject. They got on to, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus was gracious and and didn't give him a full rebuke, but said, you know, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. And then he redirects him back onto the, to the subject that he wants to speak to him about, and that is that they have a need for power. Power to, not for themselves, not to serve themselves. Power not to be the greatest. Power not to, to call down fire from heaven to Samarit, on the Samaritans like they had, they, had, they had raised as an option, like they could do that. But, but not power to serve themselves or have a self-focus, but power to be witnesses to Jesus and power to be other-centered, power to serve others. And, and also he tells them the three, the three uh, or the, uh, the scope of this, of this mission to receive this power to be a witness, and that is to go and do that in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And lastly, we saw the three potential relationships one can have with the Holy Spirit. We saw those that were described as three different prepositions, with, in, and upon. Before we are saved, the Holy Spirit is with us. And then after we come to know the Lord, after we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when we're regenerated, so God's Spirit comes inside of our spirits and He makes our spirit alive, then He comes inside of us. And then often, but not always, subsequent to salvation, the Holy Spirit comes upon us, but that can happen concurrently with salvation, as we saw with, um, with Cornelius. The important thing to remember is that God wants us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He wants us to have that, that endowment with power to be witnesses for him. He knows that, that we don't have that power in and of ourselves. He knows that we're, they're powerless to, to be a witness to Jesus, and that's why he promised that we would receive that power. And if we don't have that power, if we don't sense that we've been baptized with the Spirit... We can ask for the Holy Spirit to, to come upon us, as Jesus referred to in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, when he said, You being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Holy Spirit, my Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So it's just there for the asking. You don't, you don't have to, to tarry anymore. There's a specific reason why the disciples needed to tarry. But that is, was never given after that. We're never told to wait and tarry for the baptism with the Spirit. And he just says to ask. And so it's a lot to take away from the book of Acts. But without the baptism with the Spirit in the disciples' lives, there would be no book of Acts. All that you see after Acts chapter 2 is all a result of them being empowered. And that's why Jesus told them to wait. Because if they didn't wait, they wouldn't have received that power. Thus, the rest of the book of Acts couldn't have happened. So it's very, very important. Now, this morning, as we, lead, as we read through the verses leading up to chapter 2, we see basically three events take place. We see Jesus' ascension. We see the disciples return to Jerusalem. And lastly, we see them replace Judas and the replacement of him because he committed suicide and so they needed to replace him and fulfill uh, what the scripture had said. So let's look at the first event. Let's begin with the ascension of Christ in verses 9 through 11. Verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? 
This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So here we're told in verse 9 that while they watched, he was taken up. While they watched, he was taken up. Luke gives us some added details of this at the end of his gospel in Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. First of all, Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that he that Jesus led them as far as Bethany. Now, Bethany, if you remember, was the city from which Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha were from. It's two miles east of the temple. The Mount of Olives is about 200 feet above the, uh, the, uh, the temple area, the temple mount. And it's not really a mount. I mean, it's technically a mountain probably, but it's more like a hill when you compare our, you know, the Sierra Nevada range. You know, it's not, it's not huge like uh, we're used to. But on the eastern slope of the, of the, of the Mount of Olives there, is, down the slope a little bit, about a mile, is, about the, is, is roughly where the city of Bethany was. And so he led him as far as Bethany, we're told in Luke. And another detail that Luke adds at the end of his gospel is that he tells us that Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. And so he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and as he blessed them, he was, taking, he was taken up. So here's the picture. Jesus, he leads him as far as Bethany, and then he, it's time for him to ascend. And then he puts out his hands, and he blesses them, and then he starts, starts going up. And they're you know, looking up in the sky and, and everything. But one, one thing that I want to note here is that that's the last thing he does before he goes up into heaven. Jesus is a blessing God. Our God is a blessing God, and the last thing he's doing before he goes up into heaven is blessing his disciples. He's doing it as he's going up. He's blessing them. And I think it's good to note that God wants to bless us. It's his heart to bless us. Sometimes we get the wrong picture of God. We think that he's mad at us or he's upset with us and he's out to get me sometimes. But his heart is a father's heart. His heart is a heart that wants to bless and pour out his love and his grace on our lives. So that's what he did. So that's kind of the picture. But then, they, then Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that Luke, uh, or that, that, that the disciples worshipped. They worshipped him. They saw him going up and they worshipped him. Now, of course, that would be the natural response you would think what would happen. Is they see someone going up into heaven and he has the power to do that. I think worshipping would probably be on the top of the list of what you'd want to do. And that's what they do. But Luke gives us this detail in the end of uh, his gospel that he doesn't give us in chapter 1. So those, those few details I wanted to cover. But he's assuming that Theophilus already knows that because he already had written in his former account these things. Now notice also in verse 9, it says, he was taken up. It doesn't say he took himself up. It says he was taken up. And in the Greek, it's in the, the, the verb there is in the passive voice, which means that something is being done to him. It's not, he has the power, of course, to, to send himself up into heaven. Jesus did. But he, the language is letting us know he was taken up, that the father was exalting his son, that he, the father was exalting the one that he loved so much. The Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, echoed the same thing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He said, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This is in Jesus' incarnation. And became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. So Jesus was exalted. But not only exalted, but he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, who, speaking of Jesus being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sat down. He's talking about him finishing that work, and he sat down. His job was done. He sat. And so this was the time where Jesus was exalted and brought up to heaven. Can you imagine the reception that the Lord Jesus must have received? The most amazing part about this account is not what the disciples see, but it's what they don't see. It's, what's, it's what happens up in the heavenlies as Jesus goes up into heaven. Because surely you know that the reception that he got was wonderful. The angels rejoicing and praising and, and you know, thanking God for, for sending Jesus and how he accomplished all that he accomplished for, for us. Amazing. Amazing. So the, ma- the amazing thing is what the disciples didn't see. Just imagine the host of heaven rejoicing and just worshiping God because of what Jesus did. Notice also in verse 10 how intently the disciples gazed toward heaven as he slowly ascends. Verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. I want to stop there for a minute. Now the words look steadfastly in English is all one word in Greek. And it means to stare to the point of straining. To stare to the point of straining. Between Luke and Acts, Luke uses this word 14 times between his two books. And one of these examples is in Luke 4, verse 18, where Jesus is in Nazareth and he reads the part of Isaiah. And he, says, he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And that's the same word. They were were staring to the point of straining because he read this passage and they knew the implications and they were just waiting. Can you imagine that? Just waiting. What's he going to say next? We know this is a messianic portion of Scripture, and they're, they're gazing and fixing their eyes. They're staring to the point of straining here. And then he began to say to them, Today this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What? No way. You can't say that. You're not the Messiah. And they tried to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth there. So their eyes were fixed, fixed on him, and they were straining to the point or the, staring to the point of straining. And I don't know if you've ever done this in, or seen this or experienced this. My son Henry, he's five. Whenever uh, I have you know, a cookie or some ice cream or something that he didn't know about, there was no warning given to him. No one told him that there was going to be anything sweet coming out of the kitchen. And I come out with a cookie or, or, or a bowl of ice cream or something, and the first chance he, he lays eyes on it, he goes like this. And he's just staring and gazing as hard as he can. And I guess the message is, I want some of that. I love that so much. How come I don't get some? I don't know what the message is. But he is, I don't even know if you've had kids, you've seen that look where they're just, and they're just staring to the point of straining. And that's, that's, that's the only illustration I could think of that, because I see it pretty regularly. Maybe I should give him some warning about when I'm, I'm bringing dessert out. So they stare to the point of straining here as he went up. So, uh, he raised up slowly and deliberately. That's what he went up means. The language there talks about him going up deliberately. He, he, there, remember, here's the picture again. He's raising his hands. He's blessing them. He's going up. And they're just, whoa, can you imagine? What, they've never seen this before. He's going up, and they're staring to the point of straining, and they're seeing him go up and, and go up into, into the heavens there. And so he's not going up 
like a rocket. He's not beaming up like just taken up, taken off like the shuttle or something like that. He's going up slowly. He's going up deliberately. He's going up purposely. He wants them to see, first of all, that he has authority over gravity. I mean, that the father who's raising up has authority over gravity and that, and that he, he's going somewhere. He's going deliberately somewhere and that he wants to give them time to see it. And in the whole time he's blessing them the whole time. It's just a beautiful picture. But he, but he also is showing us, and we'll get to it a little bit later, how he's going to come back. Because when he, he, every, every eye is going to see him when he comes back in his second coming. He's not going to come down so fast that they're going to not see it that, it, that it's him. He's going to come descend slow enough for them to see who, who it is that's descending there. And we'll get into that in a moment. But it, he, they're interrupted by these two men, verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will, come, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. These two men were probably angels. I mean, we're not told them, but most likely they are. They're, they, they're dressed in white to convey purity and also joy. And it's similar to the, the men that were in, dressed in white that were at the, the garden tomb. Uh, sim- similar, the same type of thing there. They addressed them as men of Galilee. And this is interesting. Judas isn't with them anymore. Judas was not from Galilee, but the rest of them were. So the first time they can be all addressed as men of Galilee. But first of all, notice that he says, this same Jesus. I just want to stop there. This same Jesus will, will come back the same way. This same Jesus. Not just any Jesus. This same Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of the Bible. The one in the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. The one who fulfilled all the hundreds of messianic prophecies. The one who died upon the cross, who was buried, and who rose again on the third day. The one who is the Son of God, and God the Son, all at the same time. Not some yogi, not some guru, not some associated master who's been enlightened. This same Jesus. And I, and I just saw recently, last week, I saw this, this guy in the paper that, that is in Siberia claiming to be the Messiah. And all kinds of people from all over the world are coming to this guy. And they're selling all that they own. And they're coming and they're following this guy. And he lives high up on this mountain. And they only can come up to see him at certain times. And they, they're allowed certain amounts of money. That, and I mean, it's just this big commune. But he's claiming to be Jesus. He's claiming to be the Messiah. No, this same Jesus. Don't be looking for another Jesus. It's this one. It's the, it's the, 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 the Messiah of Israel. Don't be looking for another one. And they talked to them about the second coming. He said, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Just like Newton, what goes up must come down. And, and it was predates Newton by, you know, that's an old, that's an old one, but uh, I want to make sure I cover all my, my bad joke bases here. But, but what goes up must come down. So he's going to come up the same way. And Jesus physically comes back to this earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation. He will descend, like I said, slow enough for every eye to be able to see him. And he's coming with clouds, we're told, and also with great glory. Revelation 1.7 says this, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Mourn. Wow. 
That's not what the reaction that he, he originally wanted people to have, to mourn. He would want them to rejoice, but they mourn. Jesus himself had already told the disciples about his second coming on the, on the, uh, in, in the Olivet Discourse there. He said, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, Look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Or he's in Siberia, don't believe it. No. Same, same idea. Uh, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will, will the coming of the Son of Man be. You're not going to miss it. And then he says in verse 30 there, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Wow. That's going to be a great moment. Zechariah 14 verse 4 gives us some added details about when he, quote, touches down on the Mount of Olives. He wrote this, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it towards the south. So he's going to come and touch down on the Mount of Olives just where he went I don't want to say took off from, but, you know, ascended from. He's going to come back down, and he's going to touch his foot on that, and there's going to be a, an earthquake, and it's going to split and create a large valley. It's going to be great. And so often, though, as we think about his second coming, we go through life, and we, we just seem to go through the motions of life and, and our day-to-day lives, and we forget that this is going to happen, that this is not just quaint words on a page, but this is actually our future portion that he's going to physically come back. We can go on living our lives thinking that man will always be allowed to rule himself. But man won't be able to always be allowed to rule himself. And the reason why is because he can't do a very good job of it, as we've seen. We can't rule ourselves. We know that personally, those who have come to know the Lord. We know we can't rule ourselves very well. We, just, we, are, we are engage in all kinds of things that are destructive behaviors because we can't rule ourselves. But it's all going to come to an end. And remember, and it's easy to forget, that wickedness will not have the final say in this, in this world. No matter what wickedness you see, what's ever in the news, we need to remember and filter our news through the grid of God's word that Jesus is coming back. No more terrorism, no more acts of cruelty, no more war, sickness, or death and loss, no more families torn apart by death or divorce, no more lawless judges legislating from the bench calling evil good and good evil. No more torturing and imprisoning and killing the body of Christ around the world. Our brothers and sisters in the Sudan and and all these other places that are just killed and murdered all the time. No more of that. It will all end. There won't be any more of this crazy wickedness in this world. It doesn't matter how many Bible scholars and seminary professors teach that Jesus is not coming back. It's all symbolism. It doesn't make it untrue. Jesus is still going to come back. It doesn't matter how many people disagree with it. It doesn't matter what the polls say. It doesn't matter what any politician says. It doesn't matter what laws are passed. Jesus is coming back, and nothing's going to stop it. And that's something that's supposed to produce joy in our hearts. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture from Revelation verse 19, verses 11 through 16. I want you to read it and just allow it to have its full impact as I read it. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... 
And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it it should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with, an, with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming back. He's coming back. Praise the Lord. He is coming back. There will be an end to all this madness on this earth. And we need to be reminded of that in this world. That brings us great joy. And it brings us to our second section here in verses 12 through 14. The disciples return to Jerusalem. Because they returned with great joy. In fact, well, let's read verse 12 first. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So they returned to Jerusalem after seeing their Lord. And Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that they returned with not just joy, but great joy. They returned with great joy. And if anything would bring us joy in this world, wouldn't it be that? Just to see Jesus ascend, blessing us as he's going up, but then having two angels tell us he's coming. I'm sure when they looked up and they, who are these guys? You know, I mean, it must have been a great surprise. But then the encouragement that he's going to be coming back so we can be encouraged as well. And, and one of the things that can be so hard to remember is that this, these, these are just words on a page in many ways to us. We're reading it. They experienced it. They went through it. They saw him all those, all those years before, and then now they're seeing him resurrected, you know, going up into heaven. What an amazing blessing that must have been. Joy and happiness flooding their hearts. But one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that there's a difference between joy and happiness because happiness is circumstance-based. When things go well, I'm happy. When my son Henry gets a cookie, he's happy. If he doesn't get a cookie, he's not happy. But joy is something altogether different. Joy is based on things that can't be changed by circumstances. Our relationship with the Lord cannot be changed by circumstances. There's nothing that this world can do to undo what Jesus did for us on the cross. There's nothing that this world can do, or Satan or anyone else, even ourselves, undo what, what Jesus purchased for us on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. So here they see Jesus ascend and then the promise that he's coming back, those two things couldn't be affected by circumstances. There's nothing that can stop him from ascending and there's nothing stopping him from coming back and nothing will stop. So they had this great joy going back and I just love to read it. And joy is a theme in the book of Philippians as Paul is in prison there. And you'd think that 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 would be the last theme of a book that someone would write from prison would be joy. But how can he have joy? Well, because, because the things that he has in Christ, no prison, no Roman emperor can, can change. And so it's something that even transcends our hard circumstances. Jesus returning to end man's rule on this earth cannot be changed. And we need to remember, no matter how hard they try to, to discredit it and to try to say it's not going to happen, it's going to happen. So they came back with great joy. We're told that they were about a Sabbath day's journey away there and... 
That's roughly about 2,000 cubits, and I know that means nothing to you because we don't go by cubits, but cubits, uh, 2,000 cubits was about three-quarters of a mile. And Jewish tradition tells us that the way that they, they calculated what a Sabbath day's journey was is if you had the, the tabernacle in the center of the camp when they were in the wilderness, the, and the tribes that were the furthest out were about three-quarters of a mile. So on the Sabbath, when they weren't allowed to work, they had to come and walk all the way to the tabernacle and offer their sacrifices. So in their reasoning, they were saying, well, surely you know, God knew that they were going to live that far away from the tabernacle, that he placed them where he placed them. And so by walking to the tabernacle, that's not work. And he told them not to work. He told them that they weren't going to violate the Sabbath. So any time we go three-quarters of a mile, then that's, that's basically a Sabbath day's journey. We can do that without violating the Sabbath. So that's, that's where that came from. Verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. So they went into the upper room of a house where they were staying. We don't know whose house this is. Some surmise that it was, it was John Mark's mother uh, Mary's house, because later in Acts chapter 12, they go to that house to pray. Uh, we don't know if that's the house, but uh, upper rooms were very common in houses. In fact, they would, they would build the upper room to be the largest room, and then they would build all the rooms below it smaller so it would provide the most amount of load-bearing walls to, to, to hold up this upper room that had a lot of space up there. So that was very common. We're not told uh, exactly, like I said, who, whose house it was, but they were up in this room where they were staying. And then Luke lists the remaining 11 apostles, but in verse 14 he tells us what they were doing. He said, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So the word continued here is something I want to focus on. He said, They continued with one accord. And this is in the present tense, which means they were continuously engaged in, in these activities here. It wasn't just you know, a one-time thing or, or intermittent thing. It was a continuous thing that they did. They were continually in one accord in prayer and supplication. The Gospel of Luke also tells us, if we look back to that Gospel, that when they when they were on their way back or after they came back, that they were continually, same, t- same tense, continually in the temple praising and blessing God. So when, when Jesus was arrested, they were afraid. They were behind locked doors. Not anymore. They're out there. And this is before they're baptized with the Spirit. They're out there uh, in the temple praising and blessing God as well as continuously in one accord in prayer and supplication. So I want to stop for a moment there and just say uh, the importance and talk about the importance of being in one accord in prayer with each other as the body. On Fridays, a few of us leaders have been praying uh, on Friday nights since February. and We've been praying and many, many, many of those prayers have been answered related to this church uh, plant and, and our lives, and it's been so wonderful. And we're praying for the Lord to provide for a place to meet in Manteca large enough to handle uh, more than just a handful of people. And I, I think the Lord's getting close to providing that. Uh, we'll see. But it's so important to do this because when we're in unity praying with one another, there's such power in that. There's such power because we bear one another's burdens, thus fulfilling the law of Christ, but we're also in unity and just praying and, and, and supplicating and, and just asking God to come through. And then when we see God answer those prayers, we get to enjoy the answer to those prayers all at the same time. 
And so what would God do if we gathered together and prayed consistently and fervently? What kind of prayers would he answer? How would the city of Manteca and the surrounding cities, Tracy and Lathrop and Ripon and Modesto and beyond, how would those cities change? It's sad to me, and I, and I exhort myself, that the least attended meetings in churches are prayer meetings. And those are the very meetings that have the most power. They have the most potential to change things, but yet we attend those the least. And so it, it's, it's, an, it's, it's a highlighted uh, point here in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit wants us to know that they all continued, all continued, with one accord in prayer and supplication. And then, like I said, Luke added, they continuously were in the temple praising and blessing God. Now also notice there that Mary is with them. Uh, in verse 14 it says, Mary the mother of Jesus was there. And, and I wanted to just touch on this for a moment. And, you know, my background is I was raised Catholic, so I, I know all about Catholicism. Uh, but one of, the, one of the points that I wanted to mention here is that they're not praying to Mary here. Je- Mary is joining with them in these prayers. They're, not, they're praying with Mary. They're not praying to Mary. And that's an important thing to see because, you know, even beyond some of them saying that, G- that Mary ascended with Jesus up into heaven, I mean, that's, that's even more... Um, outlandish, but it proves that here because she was there with them praying subsequent to his ascension, but then they're not praying to her or setting her up as anything beyond another disciple, and they're praying with her, and she's praying with them, not to her. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We're told that in Timothy, so you can read that if you're if you have any relationships with with uh, Roman Catholics, and you want to share with them the fact that there's one mediator, not the church, not the pope, not saints, not Mary. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Very powerful scripture for that. But Mary's here. Where she's, she's not seen after this. We don't see Mary after uh, this, this scripture. And she was a great woman, but she was a woman. And she, she's not the mediator between us and Jesus. So, and also mentions his brothers here. And we're told in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, the names of Jesus' brothers were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And he also, in this passage in Matthew, mentions that he had sisters too. So Jesus had brothers, they're, they're half-brothers, of course, uh, because after, after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had other, had other children. And it mentions that he had sisters and brothers. Now, the lesson for us is, the, is, like I said, the importance of the continuously lifting these things up before the Lord together, united in one accord, and not, you know, not in a Honda. It's a bad joke, I know, but just they're not in one accord there. Uh, they weren't in a, um, a Camry either, but they were in one accord. They were in to- it means that they were in total unity. They were in total unity there, and they were, they were seeking God and praying God together, and I hope that that will mark Calvary Chapel Manteca in the future. But Paul wrote the importance of prayer in 1 Thessalonians, and he wrote that to, for us to pray without ceasing. And does that mean that we're they're uttering a prayer 24 hours a day? No, it's the attitude of our hearts. It's seeking the Lord and talking to Him and hearing Him speak back to us and opening our hearts up to Him. Paul also wrote to the church in Ephesus, and he said, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So here they are continuously praising God in the temple, and it's the same type of thing, always making melody in your heart to the Lord. My melody really isn't a true melody, probably. It's something totally different that's not 
uh, melodic, if that's a word. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a noise. It's a joyful noise to the Lord. Uh, but the Lord is blessed by it because it's an expression of my heart of worship to him. And we have so much to pray about, and we have so much to praise him for. The only proper, rational, and reasonable response to what he's done for us is to praise him and to worship him and to, and to pray and lift these things up to the Lord. Now we get to our last section in, in verses 15 through 26, and this is when they choose Matthias. Let's start reading there in verse 15. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of names was about 120. And said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Let's stop there for a moment. So, it says that this man purchased the field, a field with the wages of his iniquity. Now, obviously, Judas didn't, he didn't purchase himself, but he threw the money back at the leadership there, and they, Matthew tells us, could not accept that into the treasury because it was blood money. So they purchased a field outside of uh, Jerusalem there, and, and it was called the field of blood. So uh, he didn't personally purchase that, but, it, but he says it was just like as if he did because it was the money that he received for betraying Christ. And then he gives us this, this wonderful blessing of detail there about his entrails gushing out. And some point to that and say, hey, the Bible contradicts itself. Jesus, didn't Jesus hang him, or, uh, Judas hung himself? Didn't, and and, and the, he did. And, and it's very possible that he could have been hung. He hung himself on a tree that was over, overhanging a cliff and the rope broke. Or, or even if he did, wasn't on a cliff, he could have just had the rope, the rope break and have his, his uh, intestines spill out. There's all different explanations for that, but it, it's not a problem. It's not a, it's not a contradiction. So just, just to note that. Verse 19, And it became known to all those, in dwelling in, uh, those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called their own language, Akaldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So Peter is quoting scripture here. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us, all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the, bap- from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed too. Joseph called Bersabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Lord, are you, O Lord, know, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go into his place, go to his place, his own place. So I want you to note also in verse 15 there, it says that um, from, from which Judas by transgression fell. And some people ask, was Judas saved? No, Judas was never saved. He was never uh, saved from the beginning. But someone would say, well, was he a pawn? Kind of, you know, where God, you know, against his will, chose him to be betrayed. He didn't have a choice in the matter. That's not true, because the word transgress there means willful disobedience. It's a, it's a, it was an act of Judas's will. He wasn't a robot and had to do that. He actually transgressed, and he sinned against the Lord in, 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 the, in him being a traitor. And so he went to his own place, and that is a, that is a reference to some place not good. <laughs> um, so Peter kind of gives us an insight into that. And verse 26 says, And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on 
Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So Peter stands up here. Evidently, he has a leadership role. He stands up, and he proposes filling this vacancy here. Now, there are those, many of whom I greatly respect, that teach that this was a mistake, that it was really the Apostle Paul that was supposed to fill this vacancy. And I, like I said, I greatly respect them. I disagree with them, and I'll give you the reasons. But first, I want to give you the reasons why they say it was a mistake, that they got ahead of the Lord. The first reason they say is that we never hear about Matthias again. After this, this time, after this, um, inaugur- not inauguration, but this uh, placement as a disciple here of one of the twelve, that we never hear Matthias again. Secondly, they say that they casted lots to inquire of the Lord, and that's an illegitimate way to seek the Lord's will. And they, subsequent to Acts chapter 2, you never see them casting lots again to seek the Lord on a matter. Also, they they can't imagine Matthias, instead of Paul, sitting on one of the thrones Jesus talked about in Matthew 19 and Luke 22. They said that that you that will judge, sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And they also can't imagine that would be Matthias, instead of uh, Paul's name, on one of the 12 foundations of the wall of the wall in the New Jerusalem. So they can't imagine Matthias. We never hear from him again. We hear from Paul all through the book of Acts, and he's such a great apostle. How is it possible that he wouldn't be one of these um, that have these thrones here? Well, like I said, I personally believe that these are not sufficient reasons to say this was a mistake, and I'll give you my reasons. First of all, the text doesn't condemn it. The text doesn't say anything negative about this at all. There is nothing in this passage or any other passage that I know of that implicitly tells us that this was a mistake. So to say it was a mistake, you're, you're, you know, you're forming an opinion based on different, different uh, details here, but the text itself doesn't actually condemn it. Luke does not say this was a mistake. Secondly, yes, you, you don't hear Matthias of Matthias again in the book of Acts, but after chapter 1, verse 13, uh, with the exception of Peter and John, you don't hear of any of the original apostles again. So, so that is not a reason to reject Matthias as a, one of the disciples, because if that were true, then the rest of the disciples who weren't named wouldn't be legitimate. Also, the thrones and foundation stones here, I believe, are for those that are, were disciples and apostles to the Jews. Um, and were witnesses to the Jews. Always in the New Testament, the Jews were to be the first partakers of the gospel. They came to the Jew first. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So, and in, in other places, Jesus referred to coming to the Jews first. And, and so I believe that, that those thrones and those foundations in the wall of the New Jerusalem were reserved for those that were the original disciples who were all Jewish and they were speaking to Jews. Now there would come a time, and we see it in the book of Acts, where the focus and the transition happens where they, they stop focusing primarily on the Jews, reaching the Jews, and they switch to reaching the Gentiles. And, and an example of this, or give evidence to this, is that James, the brother of John, who was, who was martyred, he was never replaced. Why wasn't he replaced? He wasn't replaced because the witness, the main witness to the Jews by that time was starting to transition. And so he didn't need to be replaced because the focus was going to go on the Gentiles. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. He said it multiple times that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. So he was not an apostle to the Jews 
primarily. The original disciples were. And Jesus also told them in Matthew 19 and Luke 22, if you look at those passages at your leisure another time, you'll see that Jesus said the ones who would sit on those thrones had to be uh, up to that point, had had to have followed him up to that point. Paul wasn't even saved yet. And also he said that that those who would have those thrones would would be the ones who continued with him in his trials. Now, Paul never continued with Jesus in his trials, and so he doesn't qualify for that. And I know I don't believe that Paul would even be concerned about that. I think Paul would be, he said, I'm the least of the apostles, and I'm the one, I'm an, one of an untimely birth. You know, and, and he said, I am, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. It would be fine with him. I don't have a problem with Math, or Matthias being, being uh, the one to replace him. I know it wasn't the other guy because he has too many names. And you can't fit them all on all those foundation stones and all that, probably not. But... Uh, just an observation, not worth much. But uh, this, then also the casting lots, the casting lots uh, that they that they were engaged in, it wasn't specifically prohibited by Christ. Uh, we don't see that anywhere. God was already leading Israel at different times in the past through casting of lots. We see that multiple times. Proverbs uh, chapter sixteen, verse thirty-three says, "The lot is cast into the lap." But it's every decision is from the Lord. So they knew this. And, and yes, it's true that it never happened subsequent to that. But I think God was meeting them where they were at. You know, because it does say that they prayed. It does, they, they prayed and they quoted Scripture. They even affirmed the infallibility of Scripture. They said that the Scripture has to be fulfilled. They, they, know, they knew that there's nothing that can, that can cause the Scriptures to fail. And so they, were, see, they saw their part in this as, as fulfilling Scripture, because Scripture had to be fulfilled when they, quoted, when they quoted the Scriptures. And lastly, after this occurred in Acts chapter 2, in verse 14, when Peter stands up, it says he stands up, he stood up with the eleven. So said Peter standing up with the eleven. So Luke, by the Spirit, is is including Matthias in this already. And then in Acts chapter six, verse two, we're told that when the uh, when the twelve summoned the disciples to 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 bring some men that would be good for being deacons, it says that the twelve summoned the other disciples. So it seems like the Holy Spirit is saying he's included in this. We don't hear him. We don't hear the Lord reject Matthias anywhere. We don't see any. You know conviction or all all through the the book of acts he's allowed to be a part of them so i just think that it was them doing the best with what they had quoting scripture and praying and seeking the lord now later on god would speak directly to them and by the holy spirit subsequent to their baptism with the spirit he'd say separate unto me barnabas and saul for the work to which i have called them or in, in acts chapter 15 at the council of jerusalem he, they would say um, it seemed good to us and to the holy spirit that we lay no other burden on you, talking about uh, giving instructions to the Gentiles. So over and over again, you see the Holy Spirit leading them and directing them after Acts chapter 2. But I wouldn't say that, that God, that the, their leading before that would be illegitimate. So the lesson to all of it, though, is that God wants to, he wants to lead our lives. And sometimes we can forget <clears throat> that God wants us to know his will more than we want to know it. Are any of you seeking God's will today? Are any of you praying about what the Lord may have for you in a specific uh, part of your life. God wants you to know what it is. He wants you to know what His will is for you. He wants to speak to you and lead you by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to the church of Colossae in chapter 3, verse 13, and he said, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I don't know how many of you play baseball or are familiar with baseball, but the umpire, when he makes the call, 
that call stands. You can try to disagree with it all you want. You can kick dust on him. You can yell at him, throw your hat down, bump him with your, with your stomach, do whatever you want. But that umpire's call is going to stand. And the word rule there in the original language means to make the call. To make the call. So let me read the verse again. And let the peace of God rule or make the call in your hearts. So as we seek the Lord and as we want his will for our lives, the peace of God leads us. When, we, when we're wanting to know what he, you know, we should do in a certain situation, we always should be walking in the peace of God. So when we get off track and we go to one side and it's not right, we, we lose our peace. Don't ever go against your peace. Don't ever go against the Lord's peace in your heart. Don't violate that. You'll always, always regret it. So we can be confident that God will lead us by his spirit. He does it through his word. The disciples quoted scripture. They, we, he does it through prayer. Because they prayed and the Lord spoke and the lot fell. And also he does it directly by the Holy Spirit. He did that subsequent to this account. And also he does it through leading with his peace and with godly counsel. So as you seek the Lord and as you follow the Lord, just know that God wants you to know his will more than you do. He will lead you by his Holy Spirit and bring you into all truth. And he will speak through his word. He will speak uh, by his Holy Spirit and by godly counsel as well. Now they were baptized with the Spirit, and he opened up their understanding to things, and he spoke to them, but they were still growing. God still works with us. He's so patient, and he's so loving. So we have a lot to think about here. I want to review for a moment some lessons. The confidence we need to have that Jesus' second coming will end man's rule, and the wickedness that's on this earth needs to permeate our hearts. We need to know that, but we need to filter everything that we see in this world by the knowledge that he is coming back and he's going to end all of this. And also, the joy which comes by knowing that no circumstance in this world can change that reality. There's not one thing that people can do to stop him from coming back. Even They try. If you read Psalm 2 or Revelation, you see them, you see them trying to make, make war against him who's coming. That's ridiculous. How could you ever think that you're going to get away with that? He's God. He's coming back, and you're going to unite with the armies of the world and stop that? I mean, a Patriot missile is going to stop that? He's holding your cells together. He's holding everything together by the word of his power. It's futility. Also, the importance of continuously being in one accord in prayer and in praise to God. Continuously being in one accord in prayer. And I really do pray that this church will be marked by prayer, that we'll see people after the service, before the service, huddled up and praying for one another, that we will be engaged in, in, in a regular time together, lifting our needs up to the Lord with each other in unity. And, and it's just beautiful. And that's what my prayer is for this body here. Also, God desires to supernaturally lead our lives by his word, like I said, in prayer, by his peace, and by the Holy Spirit. God wants to lead our lives. He wants you to know what, what his will is for your life. It's not something that it should be a mystery to you. I mean, we all go through times where we're kind of curious and we're, this looks like it's a, a time where we're, you know, we're not, we don't quite know what we're supposed to do. But he's always faithful to show us. And we need to have confidence that he's going to show us what his will is because he wants us to know. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement of it. We thank you that Jesus is coming back to this earth. Thank you, Jesus, that you're going to snatch us up seven years before that, and we're going to be with you, and we're going to enjoy the marriage supper of you, Lord, and that we're going to physically come back with you at the end of the seven years, 
and we're going to rule and reign, Lord, here on this earth, Lord, with you. We thank you for that privilege. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, Lord, to walk in the joy that you provided for us, not as the world gives, but as you give, Lord. All the things that cannot be changed by this world, all the things that cannot be tampered with by circumstances, the eternal things, Lord, that are ours, our portion, that, that, that you provided all things that pertain to life and godliness, Lord, in our lives. Thank you for our rich inheritance that you tell us about in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, Lord, all the things that are ours. We thank you that your promises are yea and amen to us. We thank you, Lord, that your word never changes and that your mercy is new every morning. We pray, Lord, as we sing to you these next couple songs, Lord, we pray, Lord, that, that you would speak to our hearts anything you want to encourage us about or exhort us about or anything you want to speak to our hearts, even if it's unrelated to what we've been studying, Lord. We pray that our hearts would be open to anything that your Holy Spirit wants to say to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.